Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I sit down with Dean Hall. Dean has been a licensed clinical therapist and coach for over 30 years. Astonishingly, in that time, he has conducted over 50,000 face-to-face one-hour sessions. Besides being a best-selling author and highly sought-after speaker, Dean is also a two-time cancer survivor, widower, and two-time world record-setting extreme distance swimmer. He is the first person to swim the entire 187-mile length of Oregon's longest river, the Willamette River, which he did as an active cancer patient in 2014, and Ireland's longest river, the River Shannon, 180 miles in 2017. This much time spent immersed in the flow of mighty rivers has changed Dean's life in many dynamic and miraculous ways. His Willamette River swim threw Dean into radical remission, unexpectedly healing his leukemia without chemo or radiation while easing his trauma and grief from losing his wife 15 days before their 30th anniversary. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Dean, but before I do, just a couple things to mention. First, a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. And second, I want to take a moment to thank the Carl Felt Center who makes the show possible. Hi, Dean. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Hi, Haley. I'm really excited to be here, too. I mean, I can't think of anybody I'd rather talk to than somebody who is promoting cancer liberation. I think that's uh, such a fantastic name and such an important thing to do. Thank you so much. And, you know, first, I would just love to hear a little bit about your life before you were diagnosed. Yeah, I was the son, the second son of two mountain climbers out here in Oregon. And so for a kid like me, it was just a little bit of heaven. Uh, In the 60s and 70s, I tell everybody before there were adventure athletes, there were Oregonians. Because all of us climbed, hiked, canoed, rafted, ran. You know, it was it was just a fun way to grow up. And, you know, back in the 60s, uh, my parents were very different in many ways. One, I mean, moms were supposed to wear pearls and gowns and just take care of the house. 
and my mom's climbing mountains. So that was kind of cool. The second is my parents were the only ones I knew that worked out and stayed in shape. Uh, we had this iron cast gym down in our basement. It looks medieval now, but uh, they, they would go down there and work out because they realized to do what they did in the mountains, they had to stay in shape. And so they were both runners and climbers. And then the most important is uh, what really made them very different than most parents is they were crazy about each other. Uh, they just really not only loved each other, but liked each other. And parents in the 60s, sadly, the ones in my neighborhood anyway, that was my parents were the only ones that would even really talk to each other. Everybody else just kind of cohabitated. And so all my friends noticed that something was really different at the Hall House. And um, I thought I would be following their footsteps, be a climber. All I really wanted to do when I grew up was be a sponsored adventurer for National Geographic. That's all I really wanted to do. But then I fell in love with soccer and started playing and rising through the ranks. I was on the first Nike sponsored team that took us over to England and we played in the Premier League with their uh, reserves. And that was a fun experience because we thought we were the world's best. We were so, you know, teenage boys are anything but humble anyway. <laughs> but uh, we got over there and they were so good. They made us look like Bobo the Dancing Bear. And so it was, it really was the first experience I had at realizing that if you really want to get to the top, you can't do it on talent. It's, it takes a lot of hard work and no matter how good you get, there's probably going to be somebody better somewhere. So it was, it was a good lesson for me, but uh, because of that, I had scholarships all over the U S and, and to play soccer for college. And I, on a lark, I was kind of a history geek, and one of them was in a small college in Kansas, and I I was obsessed with the Civil War, and so I thought, okay, I can get over to Missouri and Arkansas and down south and see all these battle sites and stuff and get paid for it and play some soccer and have some fun, and little did I know I'd, I'd meet my first wife this cute little Kansas farm girl and put myself in exile for love. Yeah. And so I got married fairly young, moved to her tiny little rural town and then lived there for 30 years. Uh, first is working as a public school teacher. And then when I saw the hurt with the kids and even the other teachers and parents, I decided to become a therapist. And so that's that's what I did in that tiny little Kansas town. If she hadn't died, it's it's really odd. It's been 13 years now. I'd still be there doing that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. If I was alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so things changed, obviously. Um, but I but we will talk about that. Sure. I was wondering, just you know. Did you have symptoms before you were ever diagnosed with leukemia? Yeah. And was what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed? I had been, I had built this thriving private practice in this small town. And, and I, I felt like I was doing pretty good work because people were coming from all over to see me. I was 
specializing in sexual trauma, not realizing how hearing 30 or 40 molestation and rape and incest stories every week, the, the effect it was having on me. And even though I was committed to doing daily meditation of at least an hour or more, thinking that was getting rid of it all, I was incurring so much trauma, secondhand trauma. I really believe that's that's one of the main reasons I was diagnosed the first time. Plus, I was overworking, uh, and I always had. And, you know, my mom and I were laughing not too long ago. I said, Mom, do you think I was ADHD when I was a kid? And she just started laughing and, and basically said, yeah, if they'd had ADHD back when I was a child, I'd have been heavily medicated. So <laughs> we were both really glad they hadn't had that. But um, and, and being ADHD like that, I if I got three or four hours sleep a night, I was good. Um, I kind of felt superhuman, not knowing that years and years and years of that are breaking down my immune system and putting me highly at risk. Plus, living in a small town in Midwest, it's kind of a, a food desert. I mean, there was there was very little there, but um, highly processed fried food, and I was eating that. So my diet was off, my sleep was off. I was working way too much in a very difficult field, even though I felt fulfilled and like I was doing something important. But uh, when my doctor, who was one of my best friends, I had gone, I was going in for a total knee replacement surgery. And I'd taken the blood work and I'd never really been sick in my life. I'd always stayed in shape. Um, Done a lot of triathlons, got really into that, and always worked out, always tried to stay fit and eat kind of right, you know, at least not so poorly that it started to expand my belt line. You know, maybe it was vanity. I don't know. But um, he came in and it wasn't unusual for him to show up at about nine or 10 o'clock at my office because he was. He had so much stress that about once or twice a month, he'd come in and I'd decompress him. I'd use some hypnotherapy uh, techniques and help him release and relax and let go. And he showed up just white as a sheet. And he said, I said, hey, Aaron, what can I do for you? And he's like, it's not, not what you can do for me. It's what I got to tell you. And I thought, oh, no, he's broken the law or he's in trouble or something. I didn't know. I, I had all these uh, crazy, catastrophic ideas about him. And finally, we sat down and he said, uh, yeah, your your blood test came back bad. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he said, well, you have leukemia. And it's very aggressive. You've got something we've never seen before. And I've checked all sorts of uh, oncologists around the country and they'd never seen it. You've got features of both acute and chronic. And they're attacking equally. And uh, we got to get you help. And I said, well, what's the expectancy? And he said, well, if things don't change if it doesn't go one way or the other you might have four to six weeks 
maybe. And this was three days before Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And my daughter was 14 at the time. And I don't know if you've been around 14-year-old little girls, but I kind of think they need their dad. So for sure, it was devastating. And he says, well, Dean, haven't you been tired? I'm like, well, yeah, but I'm working 60, 70 hours a week. I just thought that's he said, no, uh, most people wouldn't be able to get out of bed. And I said, well, some days it's hard. I just figured it was overwork. He's like, no, you're really, really sick. And so thankfully, it moved to chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which bought us a lot of time. But even so, 2007, 2008, were really tough. Now, did he tell you, okay, you need to do chemotherapy and? Yes. Um, I went, he got me into a really good oncologist, uh, just a sweet, uh, sweetheart of a man who had come from Uganda. And he was this big six, four, just barrel of a man. And uh, he just was super caring, though. He's the only doctor that's ever made me cry one time. One time I was doing so poorly that he didn't think he'd see me again uh, because I was doing that poorly and my numbers were so bad. And I turned around to leave and he grabbed me by both shoulders and he says, go and be well, my friend. <laughs> and it was, I never had a doctor say a blessing over me. Right. And I just. It opened the floodgates really for the first time in my life. I was just like, oh, my gosh. And I thought this can't be good if he's offering me a blessing on my way out. Uh, but thankfully, I survived uh, at least for a little while. And he had immediately uh, encouraged me to do chemo and radiation. But I'd had so many of my clients do chemo and radiation. And even if they recovered uh, and recovered well, they had more long-term after effects from the chemo and radiation than they did the cancer. And so I told him from the, the get-go, you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or a non-compliant patient, but I've just seen this happen. Uh, the neuropathy, the hardening of the arteries, the devastation to the internal organs, the brain fog, the joint pain, uh, chronic inflammation. I said, that's you know, I, I don't want to die, but I don't want to live like that either. If I don't have. To. How old were you? At, the time? I, at that time, the first time I was 47. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of talked about it quite a bit. And I said, I will do it if you tell me there's no other choice. Let's save this for our atom bomb. If, if we need an atom bomb, we'll use it. But other than that, let me try some other things. And he said, okay. He wasn't too happy about it, but he went along with it. Amazing. Amazing. And then what did you look at next to, to heal? Yeah. Um, well, I knew I had to start getting, you know, I read everything I could. And I knew I had to start getting sleep. So for the first time in my life, I started sleeping eight and nine hours a night. That wasn't hard. As a matter of fact, I was so sick all of 2007 
that we call it the couch year, my daughter and I do. I just laid on the couch and for the first time in my life watched reality TV. <laughs> she she knew I was in trouble. We kind of laugh about it now. She's like, Dad, I knew you were in trouble when I walked in and you were watching America's Next Top Model. <laughs> and she's like, why is my dad watching that? <laughs> I'm like, right, ah. Something mindless that you don't have to think about. Yeah. yeah, get your mind off things. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about anything for sure. Yeah. And so I was really sick for 2007, got a little bit better, but I, I started sleeping. I started uh, meditating even more. I'd been doing at least an hour every day since October of 2000. So this was seven, eight years later. And so I kept that up, but I started doing 30 minutes of just pure visualization of me getting well and being strong again, two and three times a day. And I had a couple good guided ones. So if I was so sick, I, I just couldn't even make myself do it. I just put him on my headphones and listened. And I did that a couple times a day. I took very seriously. I mean, the first thing I did was clean up my diet, got rid of all sugar, uh, most of the heavily processed foods, um, most carbohydrates. Uh, I was married to an Oklahoma Baptist, so I didn't have to get rid of drinking because <laughs> <laughs> I was married to her. Um, and uh, some of those types of habits I, I had never been a part of my life and just started uh, buying water rather than trying to filter it and trying to get good water into my body and a lot of it. Um, yeah, those, those were the main things at that time. Yeah. And it sounds like even from listening to you from the beginning, you were saying that you were listening to your patients talk about their traumas and it affected you. And it, it sounds like you were taking responsibility and not, you know, not blaming yourself obviously for getting cancer, but what are those things that, that caused me to get this? Cause I think a lot of people and doctors are sort of to blame. They, they think it's bad luck, you know, that you just, you had cancer. Mm, it's mm -hmm. just bad luck. And if you're not going to take your power back when it comes to your health, you're just going to kind of listen to what your doctors tell you to do. And that's it. Right. Yeah. I, I think what saved me was many things, but thankfully the experience and the training that I'd had in helping others was applicable to me. And uh, I'd been a certified clinical hypnotherapist uh, for seven years by then and had done about 10 or 15,000 hours of hypnotherapy in somatic release and uh, studied under, or not under, but the work of a guy named Eugene Gendlin, uh, who did something called mind-body conversations. And back in the early 2000s, now everybody's kind of doing it. But back then, it was kind of unheard of. It's You get in a nice, deep alpha or theta state, and you ask your body, why is it presenting this symptom? And it's a totally different way of looking at the mind-body connection. Uh, it goes back to a lot of Louise L. Hayes' work that 
the body is the ultimate feedback mechanism. And if you listen to the body, it will tell you what to do. Many of us, number one, don't know how to listen, don't know we're supposed to listen. And so when we have these symptoms, we don't see it as warning signals like a dashboard light, um, like our oil light going on in our car saying, hey, stop, slow down, check under the hood, see what you're lacking, see what you need to do. And even with all of my training, I was so freaked out that it was about two weeks before the shock wore off. And I even remembered to have a mind-body conversation. And so I got into a nice deep state of meditation. And I just asked my leukemia, hey, why are you here? And I felt like I heard back. You nurse your anger and you hold on to fear, which surprised me on both levels because I'm not, I didn't think I was an angry guy. You know, I didn't rage or cuss or yell at people or anything like that. I mean, I was a therapist for goodness sake. And I didn't, I wasn't connected to my fear at all. But one of the processes from Gendlin is you never argue with the body. You just use it as a teacher and thank it and then spend a couple of weeks testing to see if you believe what you heard was right. Well, oh, my goodness. Once I started testing myself, constantly checking in, hey, I'm feeling a little stressed. What is it? oh, I'm scared that this is going to happen or that future forecasting or living in that tiny little Bible Belt town that was just so tight um, and tightly organized. I mean, after 30 years, people still called me Mary's husband um, because my grandparents hadn't grown up there. You know, it's little kind of things like that that insidiously uh, bubbled underneath and kind of angered me that I really wasn't connected with. And so every day I would start, I would check myself before I'd go to bed to see how much anger or fear I was holding or anything else. I was wondering how you tested for that. Yeah. Did you just, it was a muscle testing or? I would, I would just do, yeah, I just do a body scan in any place my body was tightened up. I'd ask it, what what's tightening you up there? And most of the time it was like, oh my gosh, I'm angry again. <laughs> because I disconnected myself so much from my emotions just to be that real even steady guy that I felt like my family and my clients needed. Mm. So... I just got much, much more honest with myself and much more connected with my emotions and then allowed my body to do what it does for all of us till we're about four. And that is you, you watch any toddler. They're not stressed out. They're pretty happy. Why? Because they feel things. And when they do, they let them release. Well, the four main ways the body has to release is crying, screaming, and hitting things. And our parents and teachers don't like that. And so we learn very quickly not to do this. But there's a fourth way they found. They watch toddlers closely and toddlers just stop. And they'll have a few long sighs. 
they may even involuntarily shudder, have an eye roll, kind of shake their head and walk off. What's happening there is they're feeling it and their body's spontaneously releasing it. And we can re easily relearn that process, Haley, if we allow ourselves to do so and just make it purely about the emotion, not about who made us do what or, you know, it's all of that meaning around emotion, I think, is a lot of the reason a lot of us get sick. I agree. Because in 2007, they kind of revolutionized in neurology and neuropsychology how they think about the emotions. And they now think of it, and this is just Dean Hall's language, but it's easy to understand. I think it's appropriate. They look at the emotional system like the digestive system. It show up life's experiences, be they good or bad. That creates a lot of waste products. Those waste products are anger, sadness, fear, hurt, loneliness, guilt, and shame, the big seven, or a combination of those. Those cycle through. Your body doesn't need to hold on to them anymore and will tell you when it's time to let go of those. But we don't. So we all either emotionally grow septic or do what I call emotionally wet our pants. <laughs> you know, we'll... we'll you know, have an anger outburst or get super anxious or depressed or addicted. Yeah, but none of that has to happen. So instead of really feeling our feelings, right, we're kind of just not, it's hard to feel our feelings. And especially men, you know, they have trouble with that. <laughs> especially men my age. I mean, I can't tell you how many times from parents and teachers I heard big boys don't cry. And I wasn't a crier. I just watched other boys cry and thought, what's your problem? I'm tougher than you. Even, I mean, one of the craziest stories is uh, I was such a wild kid that I was always getting hurt. Um, I was always getting cut. And and the joke in um, our neighborhood, my, my mom had gotten so tired of me bleeding all over the carpet and her furniture that the rule for me was I had to ring the doorbell if I was bleeding and she'd bring this stuff out to me. But there was one time I got cut really badly on my eye. I was four or five and five. And we went in to get stitched up and the doctor and the nurse came into the emergency room and I've never told this story. This is the first. Um, and the doctor told the nurse to go get the anesthetic. She ran out. He came back in and stitched me back up. And then she came in with the anesthetic. And he's like, we don't need any more. I'm done. And she's like, this is the first. And he looked at me and he's like, you didn't flinch. And I just stitched you up without any anesthetic. How did you do that? I'm like, my dad's right there. I'm not gonna <laughs> You're not going to show that it hurts. I'm not going to act like it's a big deal. Uh, and so that was the kind of culture I grew up in. And I think it makes sense why men, especially as we age, are so prone to cancer because we're just accidents waiting to happen emotionally in a lot of ways. Yeah, just trying to hold it together for family and all that. Right. 
The tumor is only a symptom of cancer, not the cause. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Carlfeld. I'm the owner of the Carlfeld Center in Meridian, Idaho. We specialize in cutting edge integrative oncology care, addressing the cause and not just the symptom of cancer. There are 11 factors you need to address when diagnosed with cancer. To learn more of what they are, get my free ebook when you visit thecarfulcenter.com. Along with the ebook, I will email you a free webinar series where world-renowned specialists will tell you what you need to do to address these 11 factors. You'll hear from experts like Jane McLellan, Dr. Paul Anderson, Dr. Neil McKinney, Dr. William Lee, Dr. Nasha Winters, and Dr. Isaac Elias. Don't miss out on this life-saving information. I also offer a free 15-minute cancer consult where we can go over where you are at in your cancer journey and how the cutting-edge therapies we offer can benefit you. Give the Carful Center call at 208-338-8902 or visit our website at thecarfulcenter.com. I know... Sadly, your wife passed, and I'm so sorry about that. Yeah. How much longer was that after you were? Almost a year to the day, and I don't think that's a coincidence either. Yeah. yeah she died October 30th of 2010, and early November. No, I'm sorry. It was early January, so a year and a few months. I went to see my daughter, who'd gone to college in Idaho. And we were sitting talking and she went and I thought, I thought I felt kind of funny. And I stroked across my collarbone and it just felt like gravel. And the first time I'd had leukemia and the type of leukemia that I had often is accompanied by lymphoma, but I hadn't had lymphoma. And I knew I was tired, but I was really, really grief stricken. And I was averaging three to six nightmares a night, most nights. So you're not going to get real great sleep. And I was so worried about my daughter um, because it was her first year in college. My wife died uh, October of her senior year in high school. And so it was really tragic for her. And so I was just so worried about her. And I, I felt these lymph nodes. And then I felt some over here. Then I felt some of my abdomen. And within a week, they were just all over my body. And then my two lymph nodes under my jaw just swelled up to about this big. And then I had under my right armpit what my doctor lovingly called my hockey puck. It was about the size and shape of a hockey puck. Couldn't put this arm down. So I had about 60 or 70 really swollen lymph nodes. Oh my goodness. So you're saying, was this three years after your other diagnosis? More, yeah, about three and a half, right at three, because 2007, no, it would have been four. Okay. Okay. So you're doing pretty well before then. And then your wife yeah. passes. And again, a very emotional time. Yeah, it really was. And I've read a lot since about the grief itself of losing a partner like that is difficult, but then the secondary losses are huge as well. And that's really what's devastating. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel, we often joked at home, you know, she was 
very, very Baptist. We went to her Baptist church every week. I participated, but we'd get home and I'd say, you realize I'm not Baptist. I'm just going because I love you. <laughs> um, and, and so I didn't feel comfortable there any longer. Uh, you know, friends fell away quickly and people were still calling me Mary's husband. And that would always just make me cry. I felt like I'd lost myself because before then I'd always felt pretty strong and I never cried. And after she died, I couldn't talk about the weather. As a matter of fact, one time I called up my doctor friend, Aaron, and I had been crying so hard for so long that my eyes had swollen shut. <laughs> like, can this even happen or am I going crazy? And he's like, I've seen it happen a couple of times. Would never have guessed it would happen to you. He's like, all you have to do is just put some ice on it. Just stay calm and you'll be able to open your eyes in a half an hour to an hour. And so that's what I did. But I just, I, I felt like such a train wreck. And as a therapist too, that was kind of a secondary loss. I, I, I felt like I of all people should be able to be emotionally intelligent and be able to handle the grief. And I wasn't able to handle it at all. It's such an interesting thing because I do hear that a lot that, you know, you could help others through something, but it's very tough when it's yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, devastatingly. So as a matter of fact, it was ironic. I've been considered a grief expert in the Midwest. I'd written a lot of articles for magazines and newspapers and done some seminars and I, I felt so devastated and, and almost embarrassed that I had considered myself an expert uh, now that I was experiencing it firsthand in real life, that I even called up some of my old clients and apologized. I said, you know, I didn't know. And they were really gracious and kind of let me off the hook. But it was, it was just a terrible, terrible time. No, oh, so sorry. And then you know, then you're a year later, you're diagnosed with secondary cancer. And and what do you do then? I mean, you must be just so depleted. Another thing happened um, to prove to my daughter that I was still strong uh, because I'd always been a swimmer and, a, you know, a triathlete. We were at this really big lake in Oklahoma in June of 2012, and it was about a mile, mile and a half across. Well, who swims a mile and a half across and back? Um, so I thought, I'll show her, and it'll relieve her anxiety, and she'll know I'm okay. So I swam across this lake and back, and it kind of affected what I wanted. I saw her settle down, not knowing that I'd swum through blue-green algae, and it had gone up my nose. And two days later, I was out. She had the poor little thing had had to, I'd become unconscious and she'd had to take me to the hospital. And I was in ICU and out for like 38 hours. And they didn't expect me to live because I, I got viral meningitis. Oh. And I was in the ICU for 12 days. I lost 60 pounds in, while I was out because my temperature was so high. And I woke up and my brain was so swollen, I couldn't read. 
So I thought maybe I'd burned out my brain and they thought it would come back, but they couldn't promise me it would. And so all of a sudden, all my life, I made my living off of thinking and now I can't even read. And it was, and I had lesions and scabs all over my body because my temperature had been so high. And so now I wake up in this hellish existence with this really painfully skinny guy with scabs all over him, wondering how, how did I get here? And so I had, and out of pocket expenses for that was $300,000. And so I sold my practice, sold my house uh, and paid off um, the medical expenses and then came back to Oregon because living in that little town just didn't make sense anymore. Every brick, every tree, everything had a memory and no one was ever going to let me be anything but Mary's husband. And and while that had been a good gig, I didn't want to be a widower the rest of my life or just known for that. I wanted to have the ability to expand or at least have a breath from not having to talk about my loss. Yeah. Yeah. So I moved back to Oregon and thinking that that would solve all my problems, um, be back in the trees and mountains and with my family. And it didn't. Uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm renting for the first time in 30 years. And now I don't have a job or a practice. The one thing I hadn't lost. And I just, that year, 2012, 2013, I just spiraled into abject misery. And by August of 2013, I was dying. I was, right now, uh, I've got about 8 9% body fat, so I'm pretty fit, but I weigh 212. And at that time, I don't know what my body percent, body fat percentage was. There probably wasn't any because I weighed 152 pounds. Oh, wow. Uh, you could see every rib. You could see my pelvic bones. I mean, my dad's always told me I wasn't a pretty boy, but I really was ugly. Oh. Uh, so much so, I made a practice of never looking at myself in the mirror. Oh, and you weren't doing treatment again, correct? So right. what were you doing during this time? Uh, well, um, I worked my way halfway through a PhD program. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, well, stupid maybe. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's I was mostly just spiraling in despair. Um, I'd never really, except for that year, uh, where I watched a lot of reality TV. I'd never really binge watched anything. And I found myself spending days, full days, binge binging Netflix, um, The Walking Dead. And, and then I'm like, why? Why am I doing this? And why The Walking Dead? And then it occurred to me, oh, it's an apocalypse, the end of the world. And I understand both the people that are surviving that and the zombies, because I kind of look and feel like a zombie and I kind of feel like the world's over. So I, it was just it was just bad. It's so tough. And how do you get out of rock bottom like that? Like, what was the turning point for you? For me, the turning point was 
uh, one day I looked up and I said, oh my gosh, I look like I just stepped out of Auschwitz. And when I said that, one of my favorite books and one of the things I'd used most in my therapy was helping people come back from terrible depression, anxiety, loss, trauma, using Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning. And I knew that if I had a chance to come back, which I desperately knew I needed to do, I had to become passionate about a purpose. And so I spent the next two months prayerfully, several times a day, just prayerfully asking, what would be the best way to spend my life now? What is my purpose? What could I do that would still do the world some good? And it was crickets for like two months. And then I one day was really angry and thought, you know, I've waited long enough. This is ridiculous. Why doesn't God or the universe answer me? And then I looked around and I'd been living in this little duplex for six months and it still looked like a frat house. I hadn't even unpacked. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe Dean, you could be an adult and at least put your bed together since you've been here for six months. Maybe you could unpack these boxes. So I started unpacking a box and it was the childhood things my mom had decided I needed to have and didn't need to be in her house any longer. And one of them was a diary I'd been forced to keep in the sixth grade. And I, I thought, let's see what the 11-year-old Dean had to say. I opened it up and it said, when I get old, I gotta climb Mount Everest, swim the English Channel. And, and it always happens. You got goosebumps? I'm getting chills. Yeah. It, just an electric shock just went through me. It was just like a lightning bolt. And it was like, oh, yeah. And I'd totally forgotten, totally forgotten that when I was a kid, I wanted to be a sponsored adventurer. Um, I'd gotten practical and responsible and all that other sort of stuff and um, totally forgotten what I'd wanted to do and what I even kind of felt called to do as a kid. And so I, I started quickly doing the numbers in my head. Okay. I know that the average person that climbs Everest costs about 15,000 bucks. Don't have that kind of money right now. And my blood counts are so bad that they couldn't handle elevation because some of my dad, dad's friends had climbed Everest. And, but I can swim the chin. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and so that's what I decided to do. That night I Googled um, active cancer patient to swim the channel and there hadn't been one. And so initially, that's that was my goal. That is so amazing that your mom gave you that diary and you just happened to be looking through it. At just the right time. Oh, and you were asking. You were asking for help. It just took a little while, right? So it just teaches you. It always does, almost always. But if you persevere and you stay on track, then life hands you something beautiful. Mm. And that's what it was for me. Uh, yeah. And so, so I called up Aaron, my buddy again, and I said, Hey, uh, I know what I'm going to do. And he's like, what's that? He's like, Dean, you just got to rest. I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm dying. Uh, I'm not going to die sitting on a couch watching wheel of fortune. He's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to swim the English channel. He's like, Dean, it's only been a year since you almost died from swimming. I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> he's, 
He's like, you get in a public pool, it could kill you. He's like, it's going to make you look really dorky, but would you at least, if you're going to do this thing, at least promise me to wear a nose plug because the water, you know, the reason you got viromeningitis is it went up your nose. There's a very semi-permeable membrane between your sinuses and your brain. That's where infection is going to take over in your body. If we can keep it out of there. And then as soon as you get out, almost like you've been in a nuclear waste site, you, you know, scrub your body down. And so I'm like, yeah, I can do that. And so I started swimming. And as soon as I did, Haley, everything pretty much changed. Um, my numbers started going in the right direction, started building muscle again. My lymph nodes started going down because I had lymphoma and I didn't know much about the lymph system. I didn't know the lymph system didn't work unless you move. Um, it only works if you're moving. And I was moving. And so it was working. That took a lot of discipline because they were so clogged up with toxins that I knew that if I swam within an hour, I'd have pretty severe flu-like symptoms for a couple hours. Um, so I had to battle that. And that was because of the detoxing? Yeah. Yeah. The movement of my lymph system, my lymph nodes. And then by Christmas, my head's starting to clear. Numbers are really coming down quickly. I'm starting to feel moments of happiness. And I'm starting to feel like myself because I've got something to think about and concentrate on. And I get out of the pool and the thought hits me, who cares if another middle-aged man puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And in your case, it's not going to be a pretty picture. So, so I thought... You always had a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so then I thought, okay, what would do the world some good? And I started prayerfully asking, well, only in about three days, I was born only four blocks from the Willamette River. And even as a youth, I called it Mama River because it was just, uh, it's, it's the longest river in Oregon. It comes out of the mountains. It goes through our two college towns. It's what feeds the whole Willamette Valley, which is where all the farming and wineries are now. And then it comes into our longest or our biggest city, Portland, and ends up in the mighty Columbia. And so it's just a great, great river. And one that you have to, there are 11 bridges that you cross. So it's just a big part of Portland culture without even realizing it. And in 1984, I'd come out here for a bicycle race and done pretty well. And so we we're having a family picnic celebrating this. And when I grew up, it was really polluted. But in 1984, because environmental protection acts had been in place for about 10 years, it was beautiful and clear and clean and blue. And there were all sorts of waterfowl that I'd never seen on it. And it was just full of life. And I looked at my dad and I says, hey, thinking, you know, got to remember, I'm talking to the great adventurer, thinking he'd be really proud of me. And I said, hey, anybody ever swam this whole thing? And he looked at me and he looked at the river and he looked at me. He's like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. 
He's like, where do you come up with this crap? <laughs> well, by him doing that, it was like it stuck the hook in. I had to do it then. And so I started planning and I was going to swim it in 1984. But I went back to Kansas and I was newly married. And she's like, you're going to take three or so weeks off to swim a river? That makes no sense. What good is going to come from that? I'm like, I don't know. It'll be a great adventure. And she's like, well, who's going to pay our bills if you take three weeks off? And I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought of that. And she's like, and we're saving for a mortgage. And so I, I did the responsible thing. And I kind of wish I hadn't, but um, and gave it up and totally forgot about it. And then 30 years later, it came back. Incredible. That's when I decided to swim the Willamette. And how long did it take you to train for that? Well, that was January of 2014. And I stepped into the Willamette uh, June 3rd of 2014. So I, I had been training since August, but then I got very serious from January to June for about six months. Amazing. And then you said that you had a radical remission. How soon after was that? Yeah. The hardest thing from about swimming the Willamette River is that it's a snowmelt river. And so it was really, really cold. Even with a three mil triathlon wetsuit, I was getting pretty severe hypothermia Um, every 30 to 45 minutes, I'd have to get out and do jumping jacks to just warm my body up because I was getting what's called thrombosis where you can feel your internal organs banging against your rib cage. It's not a great feeling. And that was the hardest challenge is trying to swim through that. Didn't know that that cold was boosting my immune system. And then all sorts of other beautiful things that we could take time for if you want to, but probably don't have to, um, were happening because I was so deeply immersed in nature. The first blood test that I took after the leukemia was gone. And um, my doctor, who was world's number three researcher in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, said he'd never seen it happen. And if he hadn't diagnosed me himself, he would have thought somebody had misdiagnosed me. Amazing. And what do you attribute it to? Do you attribute it to to living your purpose? I've come to believe that when you follow your dream, and Haley's dream is not Dean's dream, I believe that we all have a dream inside of us like an instinct of a goose to fly south for the winter. And if you find the courage and take the time to even identify what that is, that that puts you in place to meet the people you're supposed to meet and do the things you're supposed to do. So I think that was huge. But then also, I think one of the reasons that you never hear about that I talk a lot about nowadays, one of the main reasons that we are all so sick and getting cancer is because we're so disconnected from nature. I believe we are wild animals that have been taken out of the wild. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of those really awful zoos where where animals are put in small cages and what happens to them and how sickly and sad they become. But I think our houses, even though they're nice, are kind of small cages. 
and we've gotten so disconnected from uh, the forests, from the plants, especially from water, from sunshine. I wish I was a little more disconnected from sunshine right now. <laughs> um, that it makes us sick. I think you're absolutely right, and that's I'm assuming why you decided to write your book, The Wild Cure. Right, right, yeah. It's just. You know, because when I swam it, I was just my main focus and my main purpose for swimming the 187 miles was I wanted to inspire other cancer patients to refuse to give up. And I thought if they saw me as an active cancer patient doing this, they'd think, well, if that guy as an active cancer patient himself can do that, I can at least do chemo or do whatever I need to do in order to further my recovery. I had no idea the river would heal me. I had no idea what would happen. And after the leukemia went away, my oncologist and I both thought that the lymphoma would pass pretty quickly too, but it got aggressive. And so having been healed by nature, I really started reading everything I could in ecotherapy and eco-psychology. Um, it's a new field, fairly new since the 90s, uh, the restorative and healing properties for mind and body um, uh, by nature. And I ran across uh, Nippon University's, uh, the Japanese university, uh, Dr. King Lee's research on forest bathing and how it was really helpful for the immune system and for lymphoma. And so they wanted me again to do chemo and radiation. And I said, am I at a spot where it's gonna kill me if I don't? And he said, almost. And I said, okay, almost isn't quite, so give me six months. I'm gonna start going out every night or every Thursday night, spend all night and then all day Friday, once a week, because Dr. King Lee's research showed that there's something in essential oil that's emitted from forests, especially pine and fir and cedar, called phytoncides. And those phytoncides boost your immune system and accelerate and empower what's called the NK cells or natural killer cells, the cancer killing cells, by two to 300 times for two weeks, mm. even if you just spend an hour out there. So I thought, okay, if I go out every week and this phenomenon lasts two weeks, it'll start becoming exponential. That was my hope. And so I started doing that March of 2015, no, May of 2015. And by March of 2016, my lymphoma was gone as well. Ah, oh, that's just so incredible. And it, it just gives hope to so many people. So I so appreciate you sharing your story. And I want to get into random round real quick. We'll just make a we'll make sure. it quick. That'll be fun. Okay. So fill in the blank. Freedom to you is the present moment. Yeah. The last show you binged and loved. I know you have binged. <laughs> uh Ted Lasso. Great one. When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Barrel it down to the present moment. Again, that's why there's freedom there. If if you're truly in this moment, unless something traumatic or violence happening, there's very little to be scared of. 
very little to be um, to regret or to feel bad about, very little to fear. Yeah, we really truly are most empowered in this present moment. If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, who would it be and why? Can I pick two people? <laughs> oh, sure. Okay. I would love to sit down and talk to Einstein. Probably wouldn't understand a word he'd say, but I'd record it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, I'd love to talk to my sweet little wife that I lost, Aww. find out how she's doing and what the other side's like. Yes. Beautiful. What is your favorite go-to snack? Yeah. Apples. I love, and my wife's got me on, she loves the, this variety called super bee. Um, yeah, they're, they're really crisp and very delicious. And so I just absolutely love apples, any kind of fruit or berry. What is one simple thing that brings you joy? Oh, wow. Uh, being with people I love being outdoors, being in a wild waterway and feeling the flow. What is your favorite form of exercise? I think you might have told us. <laughs> <laughs> Big shocker. <laughs> uh, I am lucky enough to live in Oregon and uh, only 13 minutes away is my daily swim spot. It's one of the cleanest rivers in Oregon. It's called the Clackamas. And so I often will swim a half mile to a mile downstream and then I'll fight my way back up. And uh, I often see trout and then many times you'll see a bald eagle or two and, and it's just so clean and clear and I'm just moving with it. It's just, and it's surrounded by hundred foot Douglas fir trees. It's just. Ah, sounds amazing. It's, it's so much fun to exercise in such a beautiful place. Oh, I have to go visit there. Yeah. What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? Uh, being alive and being healthy. I am so robustly healthy. And after having gone what things like we've gone through, boy, you just, I remember when I was at my sickest, I thought, you know, I'm not a multimillionaire, but if I was, I'd, I'd give all my money to feel better. Again. Yeah. You know, if you don't have your health, there's nothing else really you can do. Ah, that's completely how I feel. And last, where can people find you if they want to learn more? Oh, my website is thewildcureway.com. I'm on Instagram. And one of the things I promised myself in life is that as those numbers increased, I wouldn't become one of those smarmy influencers that thought he was a big shot. <laughs> and so uh, I promised myself uh, and man. Um, sometimes it's like a full-time job, but if you DM me, I will always answer. Oh, that's amazing. And so I'm, I'm very active there and they can get a hold of me. Wonderful. Well, Dean, thank you so much. This was just such an awesome conversation. I enjoyed it so much. And I know the audience will too. Oh, thank you, Haley. I hope so. Thank you. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.